If God gave humans the gift of making culture, including popular culture, what does that mean for us now? How does human sinfulness corrupt our stories and songs, despite the good reflections in these gifts? And what five questions can help us engage this messy mix of popular culture and, for Christian parents and leaders, help teach our kids to do the same? This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. In this podcast, we find truth in fantastic stories, and we find the best Christian-made fantastic novels in fantasy, science fiction, and beyond. And we apply the awesomeness found in these stories to the real world that our creator, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher, and I am also the co-author of my very first book that just released one of three authors of The Pop Culture Parent, helping kids engage their world for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell, but you can call me Zach. And this is episode 32, What Five Questions Help Us Engage Popular Culture for God's Glory. It's the second part of our two-part series based on Stephen's new book, The Pop Culture Parent. I'm really looking forward to this, Stephen. I've pre-ordered it on Amazon. It's coming in just a couple days as we record this. So let's dive right into this. Yeah, since we recorded our last episode, I have been blessed to get a very nicely large box full to the brim of books that I really don't care to read, actually. Zach, they're all the same book, and I know exactly <laughs> what's in there. I mean, most people, book lovers anyway, who get a full box of books would be overjoyed. But even though I do like this book very much, it's one of the most favorite books <laughs> I own. Uh, it's it's actually not one that I care to read right now. It's a, it's a weird place to be where I'm happy to get it, but I, I don't actually read it. So anyway, we're actually going then to make the pop culture parent the de facto episode sponsor of this episode, which makes a lot of sense uh, considering that chapter two of the book is a big source for the content, not only of the last episode, in which we explored the purpose of popular culture in God's universe, but this episode, in which we understand how that purpose has been corrupted by sin, but explore five questions that can help us engage this mess of popular culture anyway. That book released on September the 7th, on Monday, uh, from New Growth Press, and its authors are Ted Turno, E. Stephen Burnett, being myself, and Jared Moore. Ted is the teacher. I'm the storyteller, and Jared is the pastor. And uh, right now, we all are privileged to be able to take care of kids of various ages. This is the back cover of The Pop Culture Parent. Quote, knowing how to deal with popular culture as a parent can be overwhelming. How can you enter into your children's lives and connect with their interests, but still point them toward Jesus? Many parents fear the influence of popular culture or ignore it altogether. This guide equips parents to raise grace-oriented disciples and cultural missionaries in a post-Christian world. End quote. So listeners, this overlaps perfectly with the mission of Fantastical Truth and Lorehaven. While Lorehaven is reviewing the best Christian-made fantasy, sci-fi, paranormal, whatever novels, and providing articles that explore the intersections of faith and fantasy, this book goes a step beyond exploring the purpose of popular culture, which includes all of those fantasy type stories, whether or not they're written or made by Christians or non-Christians. Stephen, I am so excited for you this book. Congratulations. And it's really exciting to read what other people have written about this book as they've read the advanced copies. And I'm a little jealous of them, but this is uh, William Edgar, apologetics professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He says, quote, 
Ted Turneau and his friend Stephen Burnett and Jared Moore have articulated essential counsel for parents struggling to adopt the right attitudes towards guiding their children and themselves into being in the world, but not of it, end quote. We also have a endorsement thanks to Dr. Strange. Actually, I believe he is a doctor and his name is Daniel Strange, who is the college director at Oak Hill College. He told us, quote, the pop culture parent is a great recipe. Step one, take a teacher, a storyteller and a pastor. All who love Christ, love their families and love pop culture. Step two, shake vigorously. The results, biblical, wise, authentic and practical nourishment for all ages, end quote. (laughs) I really like that one for some reason. That's the recipe approach, I think. Here's another good quote. This is from Marian Jacobs. She's our very own staff writer for Lorehaven. She says, quote, this isn't just a book on culture. It's a book on Christian parenting. Pop culture parenting is a topic requiring a delicate balance of freedom to water a child's imagination while simultaneously guiding them toward glorifying God in all that they do. This book struck that balance in a beautiful way, end quote. I really appreciate uh, Marian being able to not only read the book, uh, but provide that endorsement in advance. We also got an uh, endorsement from Paul Chitwood, who is the president of the International Mission Board. That's with the Southern Baptist denomination. Uh, he wrote, quote, as parents of four and a wide age range, my wife and I just entered our fourth decade with small children in our home. The struggle to raise children to know and honor the Lord in a fallen world is real. The Pop Culture Parent is a wonderful and welcomed resource to help parents leverage culture as we seek to ground our children in the gospel. I only wish it would have been written sooner. End quote. I also wish the same, but it seems to me that just maybe God has been absolutely sovereign over the timing of this book's release. In the old timeline pre-pandemic, this book would have released on May the 4th of this year, 2020. Instead, it released on September the 7th, uh, right as most kids were fake going to school. And now that a lot of the schools are still closed, a lot of us have been finding alternative arrangements for home education. Uh, My wife and I right now, we have two teenagers in our house who are kind of homeschooling, uh, but also public schooling. So it's a unique hybrid of both approaches there. And uh, we have been able to participate more in their worlds that way. And Pop Culture Parent has helped us even now uh, to understand some of the basic ideas of how parents can get into their children's worlds for the glory of Jesus. You can find uh, the Pop Culture Parent uh, from New Growth Press. That's our publisher, and their website is newgrowthpress.com. It's also available at christianbook.com. I found it at the Gospel Coalition store. Tenofthose.com also sells it in uh, both the United States and the UK. And of course, it's available at Amazon. You can see the show notes for the endorsements I've just read, as well as the purchase link. And you can also find more at thepopcultureparent.com. Well, Stephen, the other thing that happened this weekend that's an exciting thing to coincide with your book release is Christopher Nolan's movie Tenet, which just came out. Man, I'm looking forward to seeing that. I haven't figured out the best way perhaps to do it. Have you seen it yet? I almost got to see it on Wednesday. A couple of friends of mine went. I almost would have been able to go. It wasn't a safety precaution that caused me to stay home. I was just exhausted. We literally last weekend moved houses just a few streets over, but that still takes a lot out of a body. So. I get yeah. better and improved uh, recording space, uh, but also some exhaustion to go along with it. So, tenant, here I come, and maybe hopefully they'll fix that infamous sound mix problem before I finally get to see it, uh, hopefully in theaters. Yeah, and it looks like a lot of theaters now, you can rent out the whole theater for you and 10 friends, so that could be a fun way, too. 
Listener, if you've seen this movie, we'd love to hear how your experience was. And if this is the first movie you've seen in six months, that would be very interesting too to hear about that. Okay, well, let's dive into our show today. We're first going to talk about how popular culture is God's gift, but it's been corrupted by sin. In our last episode, we explored how popular culture is actually a gift of God. It's not just neutral or distraction from sin or a way to teach specific evangelism or moral principles. You don't have to start with a movie quote and build a sermon around it. It's a way that we worship God. Now, that might have uh, sounded a little weird, but we're going to dive into why. Just like we will till the earth, harvest grain and grapes, and build buildings and technology in the current earth and in the coming new earth, we make stories and songs to reflect God back to him. It's called the cultural mandate, and God gave this to his people in Genesis 1, 28. But of course, something happened in Genesis 3, which we're all very familiar with because we experience it every day, and that is the curse of sin. Yes, we cannot proceed with the idea that popular culture is this amazing gift of God any more than we can proceed as if every person we meet is just an amazing gift of God, perfectly good, perfectly holy. It's not true. We have the fall between God's good creation and now. And even though God is working in the world, he's holding everything together. He is preserving those natural laws and enforcing those moral laws. He's given us good gifts like civilization and government and even that quiet, nagging voice of the conscience in the hearts of most people, even those who reject him. All those good things are still in the world, but humans have fallen. We are by nature sinful. And that means that also by nature, by impulse, we can hardly even help it. The stuff that we make contains idols. It contains sin, not just bad stuff as if a particular series of sounds or particular series of sights are themselves sinful, but popular culture contains idols, imposters, fake gods that tug at the idolatry of our hearts. Popular culture is not a uniform good. It has also become corrupt, just like human sins. And Zach and listeners, we all know, if we're really honest, we can't just say, oh, we're, we're grownups. Uh, we're parents. We're mature. We're pastors. Uh, popular culture doesn't bother me that way. I can watch anything I want. I can listen to anything I want. And all that discernment stuff, well, that's just for the kids. That's for the immature folks, uh, the, uh, the children, you know, those who can't uh, tolerate the R rating like I can. Each one of us has specific idolatries in our hearts, and we cannot help it if particular items of popular culture will pull those idols out and, in a sense, feel like they're causing us to sin. In my case, there's some videos, movies, that even right now, at least lately in my spiritual journey, bad language really does bother me. And that's not because, oh no, if I hear this bad word, that means I've automatically sinned. No, right now I'm actually vulnerable to using that kind of language in moments where I'm getting irrationally angry. And I say irrationally because whenever I'm, I'm talking about moments when not that I'm angry at sin or even angry at, at someone who has sinned momentarily, I'm talking about irrational anger that if I trace it down to the idol, the idol is I'm God and that thing shouldn't have stepped outside my rule. Uh, God himself is not irrationally angry when something violates his rule, but we have that fake idol of fake godhood in our minds. And whenever I see someone, even in a movie, you know, saying something really bad, I get that, get that feeling like, oh, I'm not sure that I should put that in my brain because then it's going to come out of me and not because it was a story, but because I'm actually angry. 
And I feel like using those words in a way that is ungodly. It doesn't serve the story, even though you might argue that it might serve the story of the movie that I just saw. I see. I thought you were going to go for a combo move there and talk about stepping on a Lego and then letting out some swear words. I mean, that's a, that'd be a, <laughs> I can definitely understand that as a dad with, uh, with little kids. But Stephen, I'll, I'll tell you where pop culture and my sinful nature collide, and that's video games. So video games have been something that have been a part of my life forever, like since, I, I don't know, I was six or seven and got my first Nintendo. And I've had, what, three or four Nintendos now and PC games and iPhone games and other things. And man, what a double-edged sword. Video games can be a lot of fun. They can be a great way to relax. It can be a great way to spend time with my kids, with, with other friends, but they have at times been things that have completely taken me out of reality. The, the first time I really woke up to this was my freshman year of college. My first semester, I was living on my own. I could do whatever I want, which meant I stayed up until 3 a.m. every night playing video games. Uh, my, first, my classes didn't start till noon for some reason my first semester. So that was easy to justify. And until I got all my grades back, which were all terrible, and I had to repeat three classes and had one semester to get my grades up and get off scholastic probation. So I had to throw away my video games and really, it was very much a come to Jesus moment, literally started walking with the Lord in a really big way that I hadn't before. Wow. I, I would start to feel a little bit vulnerable there as if I'd over confessed you know, <laughs> like in this uh, podcast episode that's going to be heard by hundreds, if not to thousands of listeners someday. Uh, and then, and then you go there. Um, I think I've just, been, <laughs> I've just been pwned <laughs> video game parlance. Yeah. Now I'm not going to pretend like I've never played video games since then. You know, I still got whatever it was, Mario Kart in college. And then my roommates and I would play Mario Kart together. But, you know, for me, that's kind of the, um, I guess you could say that's where I keep it in check is if a video game is just something I'm indulging in on my own, it can very quickly become something that's overindulged. But if it's something I'm enjoying with others, then I think it can be a very good thing. Right. Well, especially if it's like a team player video game, then it's encouraging a sense of togetherness with the family or a group. And then there's less chance that you're going to get addicted or use the video game, which is a creation of God's image bearers and contains so much common grace, especially if it's like, you know, a, a third person story, you know, with a, a immersive yeah. a cinematic narrative uh, that you just happen to be playing through i mean those can be absolutely amazing and uh, unfairly maligned even by some christians who are like you should be a man get out of the basement and go out and get a job you know some <laughs> some of that can be true and necessary but my guess is that even those who need to hear that message probably need someone who's more familiar with video games and the fact that they are generally i mean unless they have you know abject porn in them or something generally have a lot of redemptive value to them a lot of common grace in their goodness truth and beauty but can be abused sin jumps in and hijacks good things and mm -hmm. then we end up abusing them in order to indulge in our sinful nature and as i said we cannot extol popular culture some great good without dealing with that fact uh, zach you mentioned that genesis 3 describes how Adam and Eve rebelled against their creator. Uh, they took a good thing that God had made, uh, the fruit that God may have allowed them to eat in his own time, in his own way, but they decided they were going to get ahead of the game and be like gods themselves. Listen to the serpent, 
and indulge in their act of pride, in their act of usurpation of God, the creator of all that they saw and all that they are. And when they fell, they lost access to paradise. God's gifts became distorted. That is what sin does. It's not just a thing all by itself. It's not just the thing you do, but it's the human condition. Our very souls have been distorted by this disordered condition called sin. Elsewhere, the Bible, of course, will describe sin as rebellion or missing the mark. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote on several occasions that we're dead in transgressions and sins. Sin corrupts our hearts. Therefore, it also corrupts how we act out of our heart nature. It corrupts how we receive and practice the gifts of God. Uh, marriage and family, for example, that are uh, commanded in the cultural mandate of Genesis 128. These are good gifts, but sin will distort this gift. Occasionally, you'll run into some niche groups of Christians who worship the idea of marriage and family, but even that is nowhere near as terrible a distortion as abuse within marriage or the fact that people will take marriage lightly or abuse the gifts of sex. Uh, divorce may be necessary in some cases. Christians can debate that, uh, but it is a terrible thing to fracture the union of a man and a woman that is intended to glorify God and spread out more humans across the earth. Food too is a good gift, but we can develop uh, allergies to food just as a, a response to our, our broken bodies, or we can eat to excess. We can either you know, eat because we want to uh, indulge of stress eating or something, or you know, some people have issues with starving themselves. Uh, there's no end to the ways that sin can corrupt good gifts that God has given us. And that includes our culture and includes our popular culture. Well, and I'll tell you what, <laughs> withdrawal from video games is nothing compared to withdrawal from Dr. Pepper when I had to quit that uh, six or seven years ago now. But, uh, you know, video games in, in are such an easy target, I think. But it's not the only thing that's been corrupted. And, you know, I'll be the first to defend video games and say, hey, they're really good. But it's like anything that can go sideways and television, you know, used to be the thing that, that people criticize. And now it's more so social media that thing is the thing that people criticize. But, you know, Stephen, I, I hear you saying something different. It's not that video games, television or social media are in themselves evil. What, what is it you're saying exactly? Well, the term that we use in the book, I think frequently, is that popular culture is a messy mix. By that, we don't mean that it's some neutral party. It's not some third way between all good and all bad or mostly good or mostly bad. It is an almost an even mix straight down the middle of evil human idolatry and wonderful common grace of God. Television, for example, is not by itself bad. It's how we use it that can go bad. Uh, we do a lot in the book exploring through Mark chapter seven, where Jesus is talking about uh, food, actually, you know, the, the fact that although food does not make you sin, all the sinful impulses come out from the body. It's not sin that you're taking into the body. It's sin that's coming out from the human heart. And then it affects how we enjoy or abuse food or any of these gifts. We can binge watch television, for example, in, in an obsessive way. And of course, that's even before we speak of the type of content choices that we're making when we're watching television. Uh, you mentioned social media. That is actually great good. It can help connect us. But in an election year, 2020, as we record this, there is also no end of the ways that social media can be used for slander and many other types of sins. Both of those aspects, uh, all three of them really remain today. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly of popular culture are all mixed up. And that's why it's healthy 
for Christians to be cautious about popular culture. I think earlier generations of Christians uh, erred in how they were being cautious, but we should be cautious, just like it's healthy to be cautious about people we don't know. However, we can't avoid human culture, just like we can't avoid other humans. Uh, right now, for example, Zach, we still have this pandemic going on, even going into the fall of 2020, and we feel that pain of being apart from other people. It's not natural to avoid people. And so it's not natural for us to wish, gee, I wish we could live in a world without culture or without popular culture. It's just too complicated. It's too much of a mess. We wish we could just avoid those things uh, and read our Bible and biographies and take part in the educational nonfiction events. You know, no, humans are made to make these kinds of stories and enjoy them optimally together. Uh, we're not supposed to want to escape from this real world into some fantasy world where popular culture doesn't exist or pose the challenges that it does. The Apostle Paul, of course, famously dismisses the idea of going out of the world in 1 Corinthians 5.10. That's a fantasy world. It's an escape. Jesus has put us in this real world, so we'd best get to understanding how we are to engage it and teach our kids to do the same. So, Stephen, would you say that it's not the light of digital pixels that go into our eyes or the sounds of a recording that go into our ears that make us sin? Uh, definitely. If we thought that, I doubt we would be doing this podcast. Uh, we are trying to encourage the pursuit of godly maturity so that we understand that Jesus, for example, being the only perfect human who ever walked the earth. In theory, Jesus could see anything hear anything, experience anything, and yet not sin. Now, we're not there. We're not Jesus, but someday we will. He is the standard, the uh, invisible line of perfection there. And we can only slowly approach that line of perfection. But it's not that if we avoid all of these things, that makes us more spiritual. No, Jesus, God, sees everything going on in the world, hears everything going on, doesn't corrupt him. And in theory, it shouldn't corrupt us either. That's the standard. But of course, we are commanded to be aware of our own weaknesses and pursue holiness. Now, earlier you mentioned uh, there are that sounds themselves are not sinful, but Naomi would disagree with you. There is a certain type of toy that our kids have. It's these singing and talking cars that are really annoying, and we sometimes accidentally lose the batteries for those. But um, let's go on to our next part here, that Jesus redeems us so he can redeem popular culture today and potentially forever. You know, we've talked about a lot of negative truths, like a lot of things that are true, but kind of more on the negative side. So what does Jesus have to do with this? What, what, what can he do for popular culture, Stephen? I really appreciate the fact that Jesus does not just leave us to our own devices. Uh-oh, the world, popular culture, human culture, every human you meet is just a mess. There's great good in there. I've left some bits of my broken reflection in the people that I've made, and therefore there's secondary bits of broken reflection in the stuff that they make, and yet there's also great evil in there. Uh, best of luck. Here is some basic instructions before leaving Earth. Go figure it out. No, we don't have popular culture as it was meant to be, but we also don't have popular culture as it has been ruined. We also, since the fall, since creation, have Jesus coming to Earth to resurrect his people, and therefore that changes how we view popular culture. I think it's vital to note first that God never withdraws that cultural mandate we talked about. Uh, we expounded on that a little bit more in our last episode, the fact that God himself has created people to be fruitful and multiply, to spread out across the earth, and to make stuff. 
God wanted his people to be in charge of earth as his stewards. It's a royal calling to make stuff using God's stuff. Even after humans fell, though, we see in scripture that broken and spiritually dead people will reflect God's purpose. It's partial, it's flawed, it's corrupted, but it's still in effect. If you read the Old Testament, even in Genesis, a few chapters later, Noah is building the ark, an architectural wonder, apparently. Noah followed God, of course, but still as an image bearer of God, he could reflect that technological pursuit of his day. How did Noah figure out how to build ships? I don't think he just learned it from uh, godly people, especially because there weren't a whole lot of them around uh, right before the flood. Uh, Noah would have had to practice this art that he learned from a human civilization that had spread across the earth after the flood. And then even after the flood, you get the Tower of Babel. Uh, the tower itself wasn't uh, an evil. The building of the tower, the, the skills used to build the tower wasn't evil. It was the purpose for which they were building the tower. Was this bad culture or good culture that we read about? Well, it was both put together. And yet, as we know, and God still had to punish the people by spreading them out across the earth, which was the point of the cultural mandate was to go out and spread across the earth, not all stay in one place and pretend to be gods. Boaz's harvest celebration in the book of Ruth, uh, it's another one of my little favorite examples of the fact that people in the Old Testament, even before Jesus, were still fulfilling the cultural mandate. There's a lot of culture happening there, the harvest and the party that they were having, and presumably they would have been telling stories, maybe singing some songs. Uh, if that case, that would be an early example of popular culture. And of course, the Old Testament itself, all across the Old Testament, there are love songs and poems and proverbs and wisdom literature. It's human culture. And if people were spreading it around, not in sacred or set apart separate spaces, but were actually spreading it uh, at the campfires and any of their common spaces, then it would count as early popular culture, folklore, even uh, before the flood, actually stepping back again. Uh, you get uh, one of my favorite other little mentions is a vast culture of music, the Jubal Empire of uh, music making. It was lost to the flood. It's mentioned in Genesis 4.21. Do we still have those melodies? Probably not. Could we get them back? I certainly hope so. If you jump ahead to the New Testament, Jesus, of course, famously told parables. That was an art form of the day that he was using to be popularly accessible to the people. And yet he also included deeper meanings that were only available to those who had ears to hear. So you've still got culture making going on. You've still got popular culture going on mixed up with the good and the bad. And yet with scripture itself, you actually see God using these art forms, these, uh, these human cultural practices to preserve his very word. I've heard you mention before this Jubal empire that it, it talks about it in Genesis 4. Are there any books in our Lorehaven library that talk about that or that, you know, kind of imagine what that must have been like? I don't remember whether or not any of uh, the books that Lorehaven has reviewed or lists in the online library specifically reference Jubal, but I think you'll find, uh, Zach, maybe one or two titles that uh, tend to explore what life could have been like before the flood. Mm -hmm. Uh, there may be a couple of them in there that talk about the Nephilim and uh, things like that. Uh, I'm being, of course, a little bit, uh, <laughs> a little bit uh, sarcastic here because, in fact, uh, there's a whole genre of fantasy writers who see those chapters in Genesis six through nine and then say, "Wow, what kind of world must must have been lost uh, before uh, Noah's flood came and wiped them all away?" I think that'd be great material for a fantasy world, and uh, indeed, it has been, and I've enjoyed many of those books. Well, let's go on to the fact that 
you know, you, you talked about God's common grace. So that is a way that pop culture is not just evil. It's like you said, it's, it's messy. It's a messy mix. You know, his common grace preserves morality in, in, our, in the hearts of all people, like it says in Romans 2, uh, 14 and 15. So tell me more about that and how common grace enters into popular culture. Yeah, I'll go through this real quick. Uh, of course, we build on that uh, at greater length in the book, uh, and yet for at a very practical level, uh, evil people, despite being evil, can still good things, and we can make good things. Even if we don't know Jesus, Jesus knows us, and Jesus has already put his image into people. So even if they're rebels, even if they hate God, and yes, God will judge them, and there's an eternal uh, destiny for them, and not in a good way, people now can still do good things. We can make towers, climb towers that hold together and look awesome. We can get food and hear about doctors helping others. We can share music. And some of our popular cultural stories even directly reference the gospel. Famously, there's a lot of fantasy and superhero tales, even by non-Christians, that echo the gospel in some very convincing ways. And Christians can go too far, of course, and say, oh, that makes it a Christian story. It's Christian! Uh, super being X died to save his friends. And then he, uh, he floated backward with his cape fluttering and his arms stuck out just like he's on a cross. Like, okay, that can go a little too far where we say, Oh, that makes it a Christian story. Like, mm, it's a good story. It may even be a story that respects Christian themes in some way, but these stories are still flawed uh, no matter how Christian their themes can be. Uh, often though, more often we find stories that reflect good longings but cannot fulfill the promises that they're making. The story itself may present a good longing, but in its own universe, it cannot eternally fulfill that longing, and only Jesus can. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about these five questions. Uh, that's why we call popular culture a mess. It's a common grace blended with idolatry. It's all stuck together. And it takes a, a lot of practice and a lot of careful discernment to unstick it. And we'll get to those tips in just a moment for learning how to do this and uh, teaching your kids how to discern this as well. So here's something we've kind of danced around, Stephen. This whole idea of the cultural mandate, is that something that's going to last forever? Like, do you see that just lasting until Jesus comes back and poof, culture is gone? Or is that something that's going to continue to go on after that. Yeah, I don't see in Scripture an expiration for the cultural mandate, whereas with the Great Commission, I do see a natural fulfillment, at least in the most uh, direct version of the commandment, to go and make disciples where there were none before. When Jesus returns, all those disciples will be made, unless we have some means of human reproduction that we don't know about, and it might be dangerous to speculate on that. I, I see at least a, a fulfillment to the Great Commission, but I don't see some expiration or fulfillment to the cultural mandate. If Jesus is going to transform the planet, then the planet is going to need humans to steward it, just like God originally intended for Adam and Eve. Why would that not continue? And then therefore, why wouldn't Adam and Eve and their descendants be making acts of human culture? Not every cultural work will last forever, as we talked about in our uh, three-part series about the epic resurrection. But I would say, as we said in that series, that the idea of culture, including popular culture, is probably eternal. And there are three big reasons we can speculate on this. And for more, you can go back and listen to that Epic Resurrection series. I think we did that back in April of 2020. The first reason is that the Bible itself is a work of culture. Uh, it's even popular. So 
technically at least portions of the Bible count as popular culture and not like a meme or a song or a TikTok video or something, but especially in its time, the Bible itself has been very popular. And uh, since then, in the multiple centuries since then, uh, it has only grown more popular, even among some non-Christians. The Bible is uh, an example of popular culture. Uh, secondly, Christ uh, will judge evil, uh, but the Bible says that the creation itself will be set free in Romans 8, 21. So there's some kind of liberating effect that God's creation has. And therefore, why would there not also be a liberating effect to the creations that people have made using God's creation? And finally, uh, scripture itself refers to cultural works like in Isaiah 60 and 65, cultural works like treasures and wine and feasts. And just logically, you cannot have those things without also having the stories and songs that people make in order to accompany uh, merrymaking and those kinds of uh, social events that we see portrayed in scripture in a very healthy way and that surely people would have been doing all along, if not for the entrance of sin. And I think we'll be doing that again in the new heavens and new earth and uh, for many, many millennia to come under the reign of Christ. So Stephen, I I've heard time and time again in church that only two things last forever. Have you, have you kind of heard that same thing? Yeah, it's the uh, only two things will last forever, God's word and human souls, and the rest is uh, destined for some kind of destruction, right? Yep. Is there more than two things then? I think there's more than two things. It's God word, God's word, human souls, human bodies, human relationships, human memories, human culture, but not just all the human stuff, all of God's creation. One way or another, God's universe is going to last forever. So there's a good chance that almost everything we see, because I don't believe in the eternal abolition or annihilation of matter. I believe that God's material universe is going to last forever. And just like we explored in that epic resurrection series. It occurs to me that there's often this debate among evangelicals that, and I, I almost don't even think it's really a debate. It's almost like a caricature debate that uh, one side supposedly says, well, this earth doesn't matter. Uh, so you don't have to care about anything in this physical world. All that matters is people's souls. So just get people saved. Just go on missions, just do evangelism. That's all that matters is the soul. And, you know, that's like at the extreme, almost Gnostic end of the spectrum. And then supposedly there's this other kind of evangelical that says, well, all that matters is how we love people. And so it's the good works we do. It's the acts of mercy and justice and uh, how we fight for the poor and how we uh, take care of communities. And it's, so it, it, it's kind of like the social gospel, like into the spectrum. And I, I almost feel like that's kind of a false debate, really, because both of these things are true. Now, obviously, when Jesus comes back, he will redeem our bodies and he will redeem the world and he will redeem culture. You know, listener, you might be thinking, wait, are we saying that <laughs> R-rated movies and, and terrible things in our culture will continue? Well, I don't really think so. I think he purifies everything just like he's going to purify us. So, you know, we, we talk about this more in that epic resurrection series, as, as you said, Stephen, but I still think the temptation a lot of times today is Christians will say, well, let's just talk about the real world. Forget all this culture stuff. That's not really important. I, I'm, I assume you've heard that okay. Stephen as well, but this is the real world. I, I always like to say, at least in my head, when someone says, okay, well, we've, we've had our fun talking about movies, uh, but now the pastor's in the room. So we need to talk about serious, <laughs> eternally significant things. I say, this is serious, eternally significant things. In the real world, people like these kinds of stories. So even if I didn't spend all this time coming up with the biblical justifications and purpose and definitions for human culture and popular culture, 
it would still matter because we are dealing with the real world where real people like these kinds of things. And even if it were true that only God's written word would last forever and only human souls would last forever, well, God's written word speaks positively of human culture and the original created purpose of human culture and human souls last forever. And your soul, your children's souls are affected by culture. So even if that were true, it would still be important. But how much more important is this topic than if it is true that very likely culture and even popular culture will last forever somehow in the real world, we will be partaking in this culture. I'm pretty sure. And we already know that in this real world today, before Jesus has returned, that culture is part of being human. All of this is real world stuff. That's why Christian parents should care about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and our memories last forever. Like we see that with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, like he remembers everything that happened in his life before that. And so all the stories that we've read and watched and listened to, we're going to keep those memories. We're going to remember those stories. And we're going to make new stories. So, all right, well, let's go on to our last part here, which is the five simple questions that we can ask ourselves about popular culture. So this is such a great list here, Stephen. Um, I, I think this, this is a really easy thing to remember. We'll go through it a couple times here. But uh, to you, our listener, you're, you're going to want to write these down, but you can find them in our show notes. You're going to want to use these uh, when you watch a movie or read a book or enjoy a story with your family, your friends to really think through it in a biblical way. So Stephen, why don't you share these questions with us? Absolutely. And I have to give a full credit here to my co-author, Ted Turneau. He had written a book in 2012 called Papologetics, a very readable book. I, I found it really fun, but a little bit thicker and a little bit more of a general exploration of popular culture and how Christians can engage it. Uh, he'd come up with these five questions uh, based on uh, apologetics, uh, based on uh, engagement with general worldview. He had just adapted these then and said, okay, let's try this out on a story, a song, a movie, a game. You know, some are a little bit easier than others because, uh, for example, a movie or a TV show would traditionally have a narrative. And these questions work really well for narratives. But when you're applying it to, say, a music video or a meme, you have to get a little bit more clever. You have to get more creative. So that's why we'll be starting with a very popular movie and applying these five questions to the uh, superhero epic to almost end all superhero epic uh, last year. Actually, it concluded last year. It was Avengers Endgame. And then the year before, we had Avengers Infinity War. So it was uh, part one and part two of a massive story and have uh, written up some uh, answers to these questions just based on treating both of those as a single story. The first question of the five is, what is the story? So what we do is we just understand the plot, the characters, what happens, very simple, in the story that we're watching or reading or whatever. And I'll just stick with the movie metaphors throughout. But if you're dealing with a game or a meme or something, then you change the verb there. But it's very important to get the story right. Because sometimes when Christians have tried to ask, uh, what is the story of a, of a popular cultural work? They don't even, don't even get the basics right. We have to respect the story as the creators have told it. And especially if your kids are into the story and you're new to it, uh, your kids are going to notice if you get something basic wrong, you need to respect your kids and need to respect the story as best you can. Question two, what is the moral and imaginary world? So instead of just asking what's the story, you're asking what kind of world are we in? What are the moral rules here? Uh, what are the genre expectations? Uh, what kind of universe? Uh, have these creators uh, set up for us to to play in or for the story to take place in. 
Question three, what is good and true and beautiful in this world? We're looking for those examples of common grace. When did the hero do something great? You know, what was a really good line that stood out? Uh, what kind of gorgeous animation did these computer artists put together to make the unreal come to life before our eyes? And of course, what are the acts of virtue? Uh, what are some of the traditional things that a Christian movie reviewer would count up and say, okay, this is good. You know, this directly reflects the gospel. And then of course, famously, uh, who has sacrificed their life to save the world, you know, dying for their friends, if not their enemies. And of course, as we know in, uh, in Avengers Endgame and well, actually Infinity War and Avengers Endgame, uh, there's a very, very significant example of that uh, at the very end of the film. Question four, though, what is false and idolatrous in this world? This is where it gets a little bit tricky, Zach, because even when I was helping co-write this book, it took a little bit for me to get this through my thick head. We're not counting cuss words here. That may count as something false if the story is using uh, like a cuss word or an attitude of a character or an act of violence as if the story is saying to us, hey, this is good. This will fulfill that longing that you have. This is a good thing that you ought to be watching and possibly even imitate. And not only that, but this is a thing you see in the story that makes our character's dream come true. This is the only way to fulfill that longing. We're looking not for the bad stuff necessarily, because the story might show an act of violence or an act of adultery or something, and the story may mean to say this is bad. We're instead looking for what does the story say is good, but what is actually an idol and how can that be subverted? which blends over to question five, how is Jesus the true answer to this story's hopes? Because whatever the story says is good falls apart when you poke at it. You don't even need sometimes to exit the fictitious universe. You can apply the rules inside the story itself and realize that the creators of the story can't help uh, but trying to pull a bluff. You can call the bluff. You can say, no, that doesn't actually work. Uh, this wouldn't be happy at all. It would not be eternally fulfilling at all. Uh, even here, if the hero dies and the world is saved, you know, in the very next story arc they set up, along's going to come another villain and it's all going to start all over again. That feeling of satisfaction will not last according to the story's own rules. But Jesus is the true answer to the good hopes that the story raises. The gospel is the only solution to these good longings that a decent story can reflect, but you won't get the fulfillment, that ultimate answer in the story. You have to go outside to the greater, most epic, true story of the gospel. All right, so let's apply these five questions to Avengers Endgame. So I'll just ask you these questions, Stephen, and you can answer, and then we'll talk about each one. So number one, what is the story of Avengers Endgame? Well, we're not going to recount the whole thing here, especially because I think at this point we've all seen it. So I guess, Zach, we need to issue a big old spoiler alert. Uh, skip to the end if you haven't seen Avengers Infinity War or Avengers Endgame. Uh, I think most of the universe has seen it by now because it was, I think Zach, that's right. Yeah. It's the top grossing movie of all time. Avengers Endgame was. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. I think they, they re-released it with some sort of bonus footage, I think in order to just get that last little bit uh, out of the, uh, the theatrical run in order to cross, I think it was the 2 billion mark or something like that. Anyway, they ended up being bigger than uh, James Cameron's avatar from 2009. So we'll we'll sort of fudge this one a bit, you all. Uh, the general uh, outline here is that the Avengers Infinity War Endgame arc is continued from that big multi-movie uh, story set up across all the other movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
Uh, there's an evil villain, Thanos. He has arrived at last after being set up for so many years. Uh, he wants to obtain the Infinity Stones to plug into the Infinity Gauntlet, which is a super weapon. And when he snaps his fingers, he will uh, destroy half of life in the universe in order to bring balance to the universe. He, he is certain uh, that there's too much life going on. And so once he eliminates half of life, problem solved and he can retire in peace. Our heroes, Captain America, Hulk, Thor, Iron Man, and the rest try to stop him. Lots of subplots ensue. Lots of battles ensue. But at the end of Infinity War, infamously, Thanos actually wins. And our heroes, those who were not snapped away into dust, uh, are left grieving. And as uh, Endgame picks up, they find a way. Lots of fans guessed at the way that they have to go back into their own history and find the path to defeating Thanos. Time travel wreaks havoc. Uh, Thanos from an earlier time arrives at the end and he's about to win again. There's an epic Revelation-esque battle. There are warriors. There are kings. Uh, there are saints returned from the dead. There's a flying white horse and everything. Uh, the theme song kicks into overdrive. It is awesomeness galore. And in the end, uh, the uh, the snap is undone. Uh, the heroes fight Thanos and the forces of evil. Uh, big spoiler here, of course. Uh, famously, Tony Stark, Iron Man, uh, snaps away the evildoers. He sacrifices himself. Captain America retires. And that's the end of this amazing arc. So... Hopefully I got everything right there. Uh, if you've seen both of those films, then that's a very quick hits version of it. Uh, but it's just important just as a parent, as a viewer of these movies, just make sure you get everything right. You know, it, it, it matters if you know that, you know, Captain America did this and Iron Man did this. It just uh, helps to treat these characters, treat these creations of popular culture with that level of basic respect. Yeah. I like here for Steven for this first question. What is the story? You left your little comments here and there, but you mostly just recounted what happened. So this isn't like, okay, let's analyze the story and say what we liked, didn't like, what was good, bad, dumb, clever, whatever. It's just, hey, let's just recount the story and make sure we are all on the same page with just what happened. And so I, it's kind of the whole um, observe and then analyze. Exactly. First. So yeah, so it, it's first just good to get the, all the facts on the table. It is. And of these five questions, and depending on who you're with, and depending, for example, on the ages of your children, you know, this question may be the one that's mostly at the back of your head. It's just a principle for you as a parent, as a viewer, to keep in mind. If you're watching a movie or a show or whatever it is uh, your kids really want to see, this is the part where you lean in. You might take notes uh, on a notepad, especially if you're new to this, or you might just make sure you're paying attention in class. You know, this is important. Uh, there may be literally a quiz later from your kids, but mostly this is just training yourself to be engaged with the story. You know, do your research if you need to, you know, look something up if you're not familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, although most of us are, you know, so we've chosen an easy one here, you know, but if it's a, if it's a hip hop group or a TikTok star or something like that, that you're not familiar with, uh, then it may take a little bit more research uh, to know what the story is or know whatever it is you're participating in. And just make sure to get those basic facts right for those future conversations with your kids. All right. Question two, what is the moral and imaginary world of Avengers Endgame? Yeah, here we're continuing to respect the world and its creators for what the story is and what it intends to be. Uh, you wouldn't sit down to watch Infinity War slash Endgame and then be surprised at all the special effects and the explosions 
Uh, some movie reviewers, I think they'd say, well, that's all well and good to have superhero movies. I guess the uh, actors can take that uh, cred from portraying superheroes and the studios can take the profits and then they can make the real stories like, no, let's respect what these stories are trying to do. Yes, they are trying to reach a mass audience. Yes, they do have explosions and magic and superpowers and all of this, but we need to be willing to engage the story for what it is trying to be, not what it is not. That means we need to be somewhat aware of the limits of the genre and the purposes of the genre. As we're getting the story right, we also need to get the genre right. What are we going to expect here? This is a world of superheroes. The fantastical is commonplace. There's fantasy creatures and places like Asgard and Thor and a lot of these uh, alien beasts that are running around spilling off of Thanos' spaceships. That's totally expected. There's a place called Wakanda, a hidden kingdom in Africa. There's sci-fi, hidden sci-fi. The sci-fi is mixing in with the contemporary, and it's just expected that you're going to have a, a giant a space weapon, a golden glove that someone can put on and then plug in some magic glowing rocks into it that date from the dawn of the creation or the Big Bang or whatever it is in this presumably godless universe, by the way. And that's kind of a given when you go into a story like this, is that God, if he exists somewhere out there, is not a major player. There may be lowercase g gods like Thor and Loki, uh, but our God, the true God, is presumed non-involved in any of this. And you just have to kind of close your eyes and imagine that that is the rule of the universe. We're not going to nitpick the story for that reason, at least not yet. For now, we need to observe and report, if not to ourselves, then also for our kids, if we're doing this in a more formal manner, as structured, asking these five questions out loud in an organized discussion. We'll get to the discernment part. It's just ahead in questions three, four, and five. Yeah. So question three, what is good, true, and beautiful in this world? Or what's the common grace? And so now we're getting more into the analytical side of our brain and looking at this question. So how would you answer that for Avengers Endgame? Well, first, of course, heroes are putting their lives on the line to save the world. That's, that's a given. Uh, you've got uh, Iron Man willing to sacrifice his life and fight and look awesome. Uh, Thor willing to do the same, uh, the, uh, the guardians of the galaxy and the Wakandans and Dr. Strange and his, uh, magical allies. All of these are fighting for what's good. It's bad to destroy half of life in the universe. Yes. Thanos is a sympathetic, uh, evil guy from space, but the movie shows he is unquestionably evil. These are pro life stories. And I mean that in even the broader definitions that people try to give it. It's bad to snap your fingers and wipe out people, even if you've justified it to yourself. Thanos is unquestionably the villain of the piece. Uh, in uh, Endgame, especially uh, Tony Stark and his wife, I guess it's... I, Zach, do you remember, did they actually say, oh, they got married? I think it's strongly implied in the, the recent movies, or the movies before this one, <laughs> that they actually do get married. It's, it's, it's off screen. You know, we don't see her in a white dress, uh, but it's right. implied at the end of Spider-Man Homecoming that he's actually going to propose to her. Anyway, they form a family unit and we see their mutual love and respect for each other. We see Tony in dad mode, which is just rightfully charming. And then, uh, I mean, it's not just the morality moments, you know, the extolling of family and virtue and sacrifice and heroism. Now, this question includes not just the good and the true, but the beautiful. What's awesome? What looks awesome in this movie? How have the artists labored over years of training and cooperation and you know, pulling out their hair over this visual effects sequence that is going wrong until they render it again and they get it right? And what's awesome about this movie? There's great music. There's great color. 
great action. The shots are truly epic. The actors are there at the top of their game for a reason. They shine with reflections of God's glory. Flawed, of course. Flawed reflections, for sure. And we'll talk about that in the next question. But for now, you got to enjoy the awesome. Uh, revel in the glory of these battles and that ending battle, especially it's basically a superhero book of revelation, as I've mentioned. And then ultimately what infinity war and Endgame reflect and shape and draw out of our hearts is a good longing. We see the groaning in the world. We see that a villain has killed people or erased them and tried to have its own way at the expense of others. We see that tyranny, we want to fight it, and we long for a broken world to be made right. And then we rejoice when we do see it made right. Zach, I'm curious, you've seen the movies. I have to ask you, like, what are some of the good, true, and beautiful moments, the common graces in Avengers Infinity War and Endgame that you've seen? I, I think that scene at the end where they are passing around the gauntlet, and it's really this whole act of teamwork, and it's not about who gets the credit. They're all working together as one. And no one is trying to get the glory for themselves. And it's kind of more subtle, but I really like that aspect of it that, you know, because at the beginning of this whole franchise, it really is a clash of personalities. You know, who's going to get credit, who's going to be featured and who's going to be in charge. And by this point, they don't really care. They just want to get the job done and bring all their friends back. And so that's what it's all about. And it's, it's really is focused on that. It's not simply like a revenge story, which is funny because in the very first Avengers, that's kind of the whole meaning of their name. Like you can destroy the earth, but we will avenge it. So it's really just about kind of an eye for an eye, but now it's so much more than that. It's not just about punishing the bad guys. It's about restoring their loved ones. So I, I really like that aspect of it. Well, even that final act of Tony Stark, where he says rebelliously against Thanos, Thanos puts on the glove and he says, I am inevitable. And he snaps it. Nothing happens. And then you see that Tony Stark has used his latest, greatest, and apparently last a nano Iron Man armor uh, to draw the stones up into his own Iron Man gauntlet. He stares up and he says, and I am Iron Man. Yeah. You know, like, Wonderful moment. Back at you, you know, you, you, you evil space tyrant. And Tony snaps his fingers. And there you actually have, I think, very rare, even in this genre, a moment of holy vengeance. Even mm-hmm. though they have been doing this amazing teamwork and, and you see that they're not trying to steal the glory and, that, you know, they put all their personality conflicts behind them. And so many of these heroes, especially Tony himself, have mm-hmm. genuinely matured across this epic arc of motion pictures. Uh, you see Tony carry out the vengeance he is the avenger and suddenly thanos is being wiped away and it's not presented as a bad thing but it's also presented very soberly you know you see these villains in shock as suddenly you catastrophe ensues uh the good catastrophe all of their evil plans have come back on them like the evil men of the book of proverbs and suddenly you see this poetic justice occur And the story wants you to take it seriously and it pauses and slows things down, but it is saying, this is good. This is, this is a good act of vengeance. 
Tony Stark has killed all these people. Oh no. A, a hero can kill. Yes. A hero can kill. If it's the right thing to do, then that is okay. And this story doesn't celebrate that, but it does present it as a good thing. And I would count that as a good true thing. And at least from a divine perspective, it is beautiful to see evildoers be punished. And in the story, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a hero who's doing it. And that's where it breaks down. And we get into question four. You couldn't do that in this world on such a scale without being guilty of something. But in the story, you presume that it's a good hero who's doing it for a good reason. And then we'll explore in question five, how only Jesus could fulfill this longing in reality. Well, and you mentioned earlier how this is like a superhero book of revelation. And my goodness, read Revelation 19 and how when Jesus comes back, he's going to wipe out a lot of people. Slays them with the sword from his mouth. Right. And so it is not pretty. You just keep reading. And there is definitely a, almost a cleaner version of that in Avengers Endgame. But the movie, just like Revelation does not focus on that. It focuses on the new heavens and the new earth and Endgame focuses on that as well. It focuses on all the people that have come back and it focuses on Tony's funeral. So it's about the people that we've lost and the people that we've gotten back. It's not a focus on vengeance or revenge or, you know, dancing on Thanos's grave or something like that. And so that is really what separate, that is really like the good and true and beautiful here is that it's a celebration of life. It's not a celebration of death and murder and whatever. And so, but yes, it's, it's not pacifism either. Um, there is a, (laughs) a righteous killing of Thanos, you could say, but it's, it's not killing for its own sake. It is to restore life, which, yeah, that, that, that could get interesting the more you think about it. So let's go to, let's go ahead and go to number four here. What is false and idolatrous in this world? So how would you answer that? Well, this is the sad part, folks. Uh, Unlike uh, some well-meaning Christian uh, bloggers, movie reviewers who will stop short at just praising the good parts in culture, like, yay, we found the common grace. uh, We found the Christ figure. We found the social justice. We found the good parts. And now we can just talk with our friends about the good parts. And then they'll want to come to know Jesus because they know we're the good cop Christians, unlike the bad cop Christians who only criticize popular culture. Alas, because popular culture is a mess. We have to do both. We have to praise the good, true, and beautiful, and also point out the false elements of the story, the idols of the story. Yes, even in an Avengers movie, which is perfect, right? Top-burning movie in the world? Yes, there are some flaws in it. In fact, there's a bunch of flaws in it. And as we mentioned earlier, that doesn't just mean we're going to count the bad words. Uh, we're not going to... Uh, look for the moments where they pretend like somebody might going to be getting naked or the moment when Thor chops off Thanos's head early on. You know, there's not just a violent moment they were condemning or a specific uh, uh, word that's being said specifically. Again, in this question, we are looking for false answers, stuff that doesn't work, that the story acts like it's a prom or a fulfillment of the promise. Uh, the longing that the story echoes, but it doesn't work in the story if you really think about it. And it certainly is not going to work in the real world if you think about it. Uh, In general, we're looking for the answer to the question, how is this happy ending not quite so happy? Uh, The fulfillment, for example, at the end of Endgame, bringing back the people who've been lost. Thanos snapped away half of the universe at the end of Avengers Infinity War. You bring them back at the end of Avengers Endgame after a five-year gap. 
that was a bold choice, by the way. I was certain that by the end they were going to roll it all back as an aborted timeline, especially because you get time travel involved. That's kind of the cheat answer, but uh, people will condemn the MCU, the Marvel uh, movie universe, uh, for cheating sometimes. They didn't cheat here. So that's a bold choice, but it also brings up a lot of plot holes. If uh, Hulk, it's actually Hulk who performed the snap to bring people back to undo Thanos' great supernatural act. And with that, you bring back a lot of plot holes. A lot can change in five years. What if your spouse disappeared and you got remarried? Uh, what if you were on an airplane and you get snapped right back to where you were? Aren't you just going to die all over again? And now you can't get brought back at all. I think behind the scenes, uh, the writers of the directors explained some of those things. Uh, but at the same time, even then, not even by snapping the uh, Infinity Gauntlet could anyone uh, bring back any of the dead heroes in the story. There's still that element of grief. Uh, Natasha, the Black Widow, uh, she died in the quest for one of the stones, and she's not coming back unless you get the Black Widow movie, where it is actually a, in the story. It actually takes place before the Infinity War Endgame uh, series, or in between those movies, I think. Uh, interesting choice there in terms of how they've released those. A better example, actually, uh, we bring up in the book because uh, we actually go through three stories, not this one, but we go through three stories at different age levels. And uh, I was happy to uh, do most of the writing for the chapter about uh, Star Wars at the end of Return of the Jedi. You have the Emperor is dead. There are fireworks and they're celebrating. And uh, Luke Skywalker has finished his quest. He's found his sister and the force ghosts appear and. Uh, uh, Anakin Skywalker, his dad, Darth Vader, is in a sense redeemed. Uh, but because Disney wanted to make more movies by the next movie, the Empire is back all over again. It's got a new name and it's even more Nazi like um, than before. And the Star Wars never stop. The cycle is ongoing. That happy ending in Return of the Jedi, it was all a hoax. It was all a bluff. It couldn't last. So, Star Wars itself in the universe cannot fulfill its own promise. It's got to bluff you that there's a happy ending, but whether or not the story keeps going, it doesn't work in reality. That happy feeling you got, it's not going to last. Not if you're living there and not if you're living here. It is an untruth to illustrate a good longing that we want that happy ending, but you're not actually going to get it. It's not going to last apart from, oh, you know who that we're going to explore in chapter, uh, actually question five. Stories are good at echoing these human longings but they're less good at answering them well. And if we had more time, we could go into more of these good longings that are raised uh, from the Avengers series uh, that could only be fulfilled in Christ because the story itself can't fulfill uh, the, the hopes that it itself has promised. You know, probably the thing that bothered me the most about the Disney sequels was the fact that Palpatine is back after Darth Vader sacrificed himself to, to end the Emperor. So then it's like, well, then Darth Vader's sacrifice and therefore his entire arc is meaningless. <laughs> like, so they, they try to do these things to raise the tension and raise the stakes, but it, it's just kind of a recycle. And, you know, we all know that it's just to make another story, but it's the law of diminishing returns. You keep fighting the same thing and it's, you know, it's, it doesn't really do anything for you. But it's interesting to hear you talk about plot holes too. I, I just wonder in unsnap or in snapping all the people back, you're still going to get all the same problems. You know, you, you're still going to get strife. You're still going to get war. You're still going to get everything else that humans do and, and other aliens, I guess. 
So it doesn't really solve all of the problems. And I, I kind of see that as a false idea. I mean, yes, it's good that all the heroes are back. It's great that Spider-Man is back and, and so forth and the other how many billions of people. But it's not like that ends our greatest problem. You know, death is certainly our enemy, but that is only a symptom of a much greater enemy. And so I, I feel like that's where these movies, you know, they make death our greatest adversary. And and we can kind of fall into that, especially now with the pandemic. We could think, man, that is the worst thing that can happen, but it's it's not, you know, and, and that's not the only thing that we have to watch out for. Well, even more specifically, Zach, uh, about a week ago, as we're recording this, uh, it was announced to the shock of fans and the world everywhere that Chadwick Boseman, who had played uh, Black Panther, King T'Challa, he in real life had died. Uh, it turns out a long plot twist. He was fighting colon cancer. He thought he could beat it, but he couldn't. What a loss. What, what, tra- what a tragedy, you know, not just because, oh no, he won't be in any more uh, Marvel movies, but because he was an amazing talent. He was an amazing actor, just very well-trained and just such natural charisma and just such a, a, a great man. And we mourn that loss. And now, like, I almost don't look forward to seeing the end of Avengers Endgame again because it's going to show, you know, Black Panther and uh, the other Wakandans who were snapped away, you know, they come back through the portal. It's, it's wonderful to see them. The entire theater clapped and cheered, you know, when they came back because we all love Black Panther so much. They chant their war cry and they charge in and they fight Thanos and it's awesome. And then at the end, you see uh, King T'Challa back on the throne in Wakanda. Apparently five years later, they were just hanging on to that empty seat for him. And who knows, maybe the sequel would have explored that. Uh, But now if they continue with the franchise like that, you know, he won't be there. Uh, um, Chadwick Boseman won't be Black Panther again. And that hurts. And it's going to hurt the ending in the, in the, you know, in the universe. It's going to hurt the story, just having to swap out an actor or change the story that drastically. Uh, But in real life, it hurts even more. And it it kind of undoes that ending and it, it calls the bluff, you know. Uh, in the Avengers universe, all the heroes come back, but even there, the characters are not immortal. They're going to die someday. You know, mm-hmm. Luke Skywalker is going to become an embittered old man and drink green milk from a space <laughs> cow. You know, like that's why fans were so mad. It wasn't just that the story was you know, calling the bluff. I mean, I, I could see that you know, switching over to Star Wars again. I, I, I can appreciate that. Uh, but at the same time, if you undo the happy ending that much, it seems to be saying there are no such things as happy endings. Right. You know, the, the Last Jedi, for for all of its strengths, you know, really wasn't saying, uh, "Hey, the, that happy ending in the Return of the Jedi, you know, that that's all a failure." You know, here's here's the even greater, better, bigger happy ending. Uh, it seemed to have no designs on reconstructing after deconstructing. It seemed to want to just stop at deconstructing. But we don't do that in these questions. We don't just deconstruct by saying. Well, it's all going to fall apart. Uh, you know, no hero can actually save you and everybody's going to die anyway. It's all evil. There's no hope. That's it. You know, turn off the TV and go rejoin the real world. No, we have a final fifth best question mm-hmm. to get to before we wrap this up. Yeah. So question five, how is Jesus the true answer to this story's hopes? And this is the part that could go so wrong because you could just say, well, this movie didn't work, but Jesus does. Uh, now let's all go play out. There we go. We're done. No, we yeah, we're done. And, and right it now. could be kind of cheesy. You know, you could say, okay, Jesus is the greater and truer Tony Stark. You know, <laughs> Tony Stark could die and he's never coming back uh, unless he is. Uh, but Jesus died and, and then came back. Like, okay, 
uh, Zach, to draw your comparison in, uh, in class levels, you know, that's the one on one level. And I much prefer you right. do that rather than just ignore Tony Stark or act like, you know, he's just a fictional character. He's worth someone nothing. greater than Tony Stark is here. Yes. But that's <laughs> where you start. You know, the, the awesomest part is not just that Jesus is the greater and truer Iron Man. Uh, <laughs> the best part is that Jesus can fulfill all of the good longings that the story raises, but that do not get their fulfillment in the story itself. Start with Tony Stark. He sacrificed himself for his friends. Yes, Jesus does this better. Jesus can come back to life. And it's not a cheesy ending, though, not in the actual gospel. The best part there is that Jesus sacrifices himself, not just for heroes, not just for the innocent, but for his enemies. I actually like that in the first Thor movie, where you see Thor at the end, you know, willing to put himself at risk uh, to save the planet of the frost giants. You know, Thor there is fighting not just for his friends, but to save his enemies out of a sense of nobility because he's been humbled and he's gone through kind of a death and rebirth. I love stories, even like a, actually we've already referenced a return of the Jedi where Luke is fighting, not just for his friends, but he's trying to save his father. He's trying to find the good again in Darth Vader and bring him back from the dark side. You don't uh, don't ignore that stuff. You know, that is good things that can point to Jesus, who is the best hero, the only fulfillment of these good longings that the story is bringing. Apart from the myths of the heroes, though, Jesus doesn't just bring back the people who were snapped away. He doesn't just raise people back to life and then we fade to black and then try not to imagine the fact that they're all going to die again anyway. Jesus also won't leave any plot threads dangling. He's going to resolve every single one. No plot holes left unfilled in the greatest, most epic true story that Jesus is telling. He's not just going to bring people back from being snapped away into ash. He's not just going to bring people back from death. But those who know him and love him more than their sin, who've repented and believe in the gospel, he's going to make them new. He's going to make them immortal. He's going to make the whole earth new. The fireworks that are bursting off in the sky to celebrate that happy ending either in Star Wars or in the Avengers world, uh, those metaphorically and maybe literally are just going to keep going. They're never going to run out. The celebration, the adventure never ends. Even better, Jesus is perfect. When he makes a happy ending, there are no loopholes. There's no chance at all that his victory will be undone. Meanwhile, in the Marvel Universe, the Avengers are going to face more villains. They're probably writing them up right now as best they can in the middle of the pandemic uh, to start their next big story arc but when jesus wins it's final it's perfect no more villains left uh, no more cyclical uh, death rebirth villain hero narratives if jesus defeats the evil evil empire it's not coming back uh, mr incredible will no longer be correct when he says no matter how many times you manage to save the world it always manages to get itself back in jeopardy again King Jesus's story, though, will still go on, even without the villains, even with the evil or without the evil, it will be more exciting than any movie. Well, just to repeat all five of those questions, it's number one, what is the story? Number two, what is the moral and imaginary world? Number three, what is good, true and beautiful in this world? Number four, what is false and idolatrous in this world? Number five, how is Jesus the true answer to the story's hopes? And yeah, I, I think you did a great job there, Stephen, of helping me and helping our listener think through Avengers Endgame and Star Wars. And so I think these are going to be great questions to 
watch a lot of new movies this fall season and however we're getting them whether we're going to uh <laughs> pandemic prepared theaters or just uh streaming or if you want to pay the extra money for Mulan or whatever it is you want to watch uh we hope these questions can help you our listener well even the books that we're reviewing from Lorehaven i mean just because a christian made the story uh, doesn't mean that it's uh, outside uh, the possible benefit of questions like these i mean most likely then if it's a, if it's a good christian made story uh, that it's going to be on your side for a lot of these, you know, there's might be a minimum of ideas or, or fewer ideas in the story that would make a false promise that would uh, present some kind of a bluff uh, that could only be fulfilled by Jesus. You know, God himself may be an influence in the story. And yet I've found that it's helpful to keep these five questions in the back of my head, regardless of what I'm reading or watching or games that I'm playing. And if you're a parent or you're a teacher or a pastor, someone who has a, uh, the blessing of being able to minister to kids or teenagers, uh, be wise in how you apply these questions. If they're really young kids, you might adapt these to that audience and drop them in here or there and working with some lower or uh, shorter attention spans in the pop culture parent. We have some ideas in a specific chapter about how to do this with young kids. As your kids get older though, you may get more organized about it. So as they're maturing in their thought processes, they'll be able to track some of these deeper ideas even better. Otherwise, you can just drop in these questions here or there. Just plant those little seeds as long as you've internalized these questions and the idea behind them uh, for your own individual use. Uh, over time, I think at least it's happened with me and it's happened with other folks who've uh, benefited from these questions. I think you'll find they start getting into your head. You're building a, a habit. You're cultivating that Christian worldview as applied to the world. It's almost like a new reflex and you may be able to do it as if you're you know, driving a car and just automatically stop at a red light before you even recognize it's there. And then you can customize these questions to your kids' ages and attention spans. Uh, teenagers, especially, like I've had the privilege of being able to pause a movie and ask questions like these, even if it's not all five of them in a specific order, you know, as part of an organized curriculum. Above all, make sure that you're doing this for delight. You know, that's why it helps to internalize questions like these. It doesn't have to be structured curriculum, you know, nonfiction lecture about the movie right in the intermission that you've just made up by pushing the pause button. Uh, Lord willing, you'll be able to do these as a fun exercise, you know, being mindful of the context that you're in. And Lord willing, your children are destined to be God-worshipping, church-participating, gospel-sharing saints these kinds of missional efforts entering into your kids' worlds and enjoying them for yourself, especially if it's a movie like Avengers that is intended for a broad audience, you'll be able to engage their world and therefore they can see you acting like Jesus, thinking and acting incarnationally in your children's worlds. That'll help them to see God is really active in this experience. And then ultimately, that'll point your kids to God, to Christ, and they will become not only worshipers of Jesus themselves, but missionaries, ambassadors of Jesus in a world that's so mixed up and so dark. Stephen, I am looking forward even more now to this book that you've published. And again, congratulations. This is going to be so fun to go through this and really to have a new way to look at movies, books, and other stories with my kids and just have these great discussions. I, I think this is really going to enrich the already really uh, enriching time that we have together. So thanks for all the work you've done on this. Um, I can't wait to put it to use. 
Now we're going to go to our fantastic fans, and we got a new review for a podcast on Apple Podcasts from Davy Crackers, and this is uh, a listener from Australia. So hey, all right, and he says, "quote Not just reviews of books, not just topical Christian discussion, but well thought out, careful, and well phrased, biblically sound insights into the enjoyment and discernment of fiction." One of the things I personally love most about this podcast is how much Christian fiction lovers and writers camaraderie it creates. It makes me feel part of something. It also so frequently reminds me of the bigger story of God's glory. I live every day of my life. Thank you, Lorehaven. End quote. Thank you, Davy Crackers. That was a really kind uh, words that you sent to us. We appreciate it. We hope you uh, continue to enjoy listening. And to you, our listener, if you would like to send us a note on something that has made a difference in your life from this podcast, if you want to leave a review, that would be awesome. We would love to read that on the show. So you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com. Next on Fantastical Truth, it's one kind of joy to read or watch heroes in fantastical worlds. But what is it like to actually bring these characters to life or watch them come to life in a theatrical performance, or to help guide the production of live performances for families and churches. Well, Zach has invited a friend of his, uh, who is the director of Christian Youth Theater. Her name is Julie Novak, and she is going to join our next episode to help us explore how we better develop Christ-like character by watching performances or playing fantastical heroes on the stage. Meanwhile, don't rely on your experiences of good or bad popular cultural engagement to direct your conversations with your kids. Instead, keep in mind the biblical definitions and purposes of popular culture and parenting and the gospel. Don't treat popular culture as some great gracious good or some terrible sewer pit of evil. It's a mess and we need careful biblical discernment, possibly including these five questions as we engage these stories and songs with our kids and as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth.